Hello, and welcome to the Modern Homesteading Podcast. This is your host, Rachel Jamison. Today I have with me Rob Kaiser from York Meadow Farm and Natural Ferments, which is a brand that he has. And he is out of, and I'm going to say it wrong, but I believe this is right, Medina, Ohio? Medina, Ohio. Medina. I knew (laughs) I was saying it wrong. So, Rob, um, we wanted to have you on because you have a story about, you know, how you started your your farm and your ferments and all of that. And but it's kind of a family thing. So tell me how you got here, how you, Rob, ended up being the person heading this up and then um, how you came on with your family and, and joined them with what they were doing. Okay, I will do my best to provide a summary because like many family operations, there's many layers and it's complex. But in 2005 or so, my parents bought this land and all of us siblings, myself, my brother and my sister were all living in different parts of the country and um there was nothing here and the whole objective when they bought this land was this was going to be where they built their retirement home and that was just going to be it uh, a portion of the land was farmed commercially and um they were okay with that because they they could have it you know, the the tax valuation was agricultural land and they were able to capitalize on that. After a few years of watching commercial farming take place, they realized we don't want this on our land and we want to do something different. But so in order to maintain that tax valuation, we, they had to do something with it. So mom was working as a nurse at that time, talked with a guy named Maurice Small, who does some very cool things. Um, he currently lives in Atlanta, but at that time he was living here in Cleveland, working with an organization called city fresh. And he, they said, well, what should we do? And it started with blueberries and berry plants. So a few years in around 2010 or something like that, um, I flew back into town and helped my, oh, it was probably before that doesn't matter. Um, I helped my parents plant a hundred blueberry plants. And then by that time they had started a a small market garden and then we're taking produce, basic stuff, green beans, cherry tomatoes, you know, basic stuff that everybody's kind of starts off with the easy stuff. And they were taking that to market. And then that evolved into bath and body products and, you know, little experiments with biscotti and, sourdough bread my dad was making sourdough bread and that was a big hit and then they started experimenting with other things and he started making pickles and the pickles were a big smash and then that led into other fermented food experiments and by this time i had moved back from where i was living at that time southern california because this is like 10 years ago now i moved back wanted to get involved didn't know how. So I, I got a job, kept working, um, <laughs> did a bunch of dumb things uh, to, to try and grow the farm and the land and the business. And over the course of those 
dumb things that I did personally to grow all of the infrastructure and things here, the experiments and the market business went from seasonal produce to bath and body products that mom was making and fermented foods that dad was making. And that became successful and popular. So that's what they stuck with. He stopped making bread and doing some other things. The gardening went in a different direction. We have a tenant farmer now who manages the market gardens and the high tunnel that I built. And, um, and it got popular enough, this, this hobby of his with the fermented foods that we decided that we were going to try and grow it. And a few years ago, we went and toured the operations of another local company that's doing it at a group at a bigger scale. And we tried to replicate what they were doing and how they are doing it. And we did. And I decided that I can talk about getting serious with this and talk about helping out or I can actually do it. So I buckled down and worked hard, long hours and paid off my debts and saved some money and quit my job last year and um, worked a full season with my dad at market. And he was diagnosed with cancer in March, passed away in May. And I have been running it since, since then. And we're the, the the plan continues just to keep it growing. So that's the nutshell as I can make it. Yeah. Hearing you talk about that, I'm remembering all of it because I've been following your podcast all the time. And, you know, we've been friends online and I I remember all this now and um what you have done and what your family did in, in such a short time. Um that's pretty fascinating. And the farmer market um and you you still do the farmers market don't you mm-hmm. yeah 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 so so you guys did all these things but then you honed in on some specific things and took out like do you still sell fresh vegetables at the market or no more, uh your tenant farmer which is Cody, that's right yeah that's cody cody does okay. everything with the veggies okay. in his own markets that's basically okay. his operation up there. He runs it all. Okay. Yeah. So what you take to the market now is your bath and body and your ferments. And is Correct. that it? Okay. Yep. And what about, I know, I don't remember hearing about the blueberries. So do you do anything with the original blueberries or does Cody now do, he just manages all the produce and fruit and everything? The, the blueberries, are, <laughs> the, the blueberries are there. They're, they're alive. Um, we, did some experiments and to to try and cover them. I mean, we had individual when the plants were small, we had individual row covers with like rebar and um conduit. And that worked until the plants got too big. And then we tried to construct some giant uh netting using pond like like pond netting over top of it. And then that was just a real pain in the butt to put up. And we did that for maybe a year or two. And then. Okay. And and was that just birds are coming in and eating it? Is that. Yep. We, we basically pick them and eat some and the birds get the rest. So we don't really do anything with the blueberries other than admire them and get tasty treats when we can. Okay. Okay. 
Interesting. Yeah, I don't remember hearing about that. Now with you guys, um, so how many people now are working there? Is it just you and your mom? It's yes, that that okay. outs and then Cody is doing his thing and he's got a couple people that work part time with him. So Okay. But yeah, with with us and what we do specifically at the market with York Meadow Farm, it's it's my mom and I. Okay. That's it. And your mom sells is mostly doing the bath and body products, or is she helping also with the ferments? Because I know you're in the kitchen a lot doing your ferments. Yeah, that's that's what she does. And then the ferments is what I do. Um okay. I'm trying to learn. I I mean I've made a couple batches of soap. Uh because I would like to, you know, we're we're not going to live forever. Uh, yeah. You know, we talk about this. So I want her to continue doing this and learning the things that she's learning, because I'd like to continue doing that. I'd like to change the way that I obtain produce and do things a little bit more seasonally and so on and so forth and have winter projects be bath and body products. And I have some ideas about Okay. you know, marketing things that could be done for like the manly man and taking advantage of this giant thing. Um, right. He's, he's heading his beard. <laughs> yes. My, 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 my giant beard. Um, I, I think there's some, you know, kind of masculine oriented products oh, yeah, that could be, sure. there's a market there, but I don't, I don't know how to do these things yet. Uh, okay. so there's a lot, there's, there's a lot to learn. Um, and that, that could make a pretty well-balanced year round operation. So right now farm stuff. you're the farmer's market. Does it end in the fall then? And it ends in the fall. And then there are some, there's a winter market that starts in December and there's like a pre-Christmas market. And then it goes every other weekend Okay. Um, in January until March. So that's been a pretty, last year was the first year that they did it, or at least the first year that we attended. It's a newer market, but it's been pretty successful. So we have the luxury here in Medina to do market-related activities 10 months out of the year, 11 months out of the year um, with some regularity and with the winter seasons being a little slower than Okay. Peak season. That makes sense. But you also have added in, um, you are making ferments now and taking them to like stores and yes. you ship. Yes. Yeah, so we... does that still not keep you completely busy in the summer or in the winters? It does with the, the, yeah. And that's definitely um, learning how to navigate that is, is, is is challenging uh the because i have to have i just have to i have to have a backstock of inventory ready so that when somebody says hey i need seven cases of you know various assortments of products i can say yes i'll have that to you tomorrow um okay so it's yeah i'm making far more than i did at this time last year because we have three different retail locations and next year we'll have a, we'll be in a fourth okay. and we don't do a lot of online sales uh in large part because i don't promote that like i could because i'm i'm still trying to learn how to navigate 
all of this and uh, I don't I'm just trying to support who the commitments that I I have and not push for anything new until I figure out how to do that successfully okay. then I can start exploring new options. Very cool. So new options that are also already kind of existing in a sense. How yeah. did that how did that look when you decided okay I am feeling like I need to grow from just doing the farmer's market to taking this to stores. Like, how did you, did you just approach a store and say, here's my stuff? Would you taste it? What do you think? How was that um, really? They, no, the, the, they approached, I'm, I'm thinking back because initially when it happened, dad was kind of managing okay. things and I was helping. Um, and they approached him. You know, one is a smaller kind of mom and pop type of farm store. The other is a is a secondary location of a larger family owned operation. But they opened up a big store, and there's also a coffee shop and a brewery in the basement and a like okay. a, a catering business. So they've got a lot going on there. They're like a hub of operations, and it's they're kind of inspiring us to rethink what we're doing here in terms of York Meadow Farm just operating as what we're doing and and serve as more of like a hub of operations. And that's kind of a a little bit of a a, a teaser into the whole rebranding of the fermented food line. Right. But yeah, they approached us and then um the largest wholesale account that we have also approached us because one of their fermented food manufacturers something's going on um i have a sneaking suspicion of what it is it's not i'm not at liberty to say it's not my business right but um they were looking to carry additional fermented food foods in their store and i said absolutely i can do that and um so yeah so and then even this fourth person who is opening up a store uh at their on their property, a small farm store, much like Richardson Farms, they they approached us. So everyone has has kind of approached us and said, okay. hey, we hear about you. We know about you. Do you want to sell to us? And that's I'm like, that's such saying, a yes. compliment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It's 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 interesting because, you know, part of me is struggles with the fact that I have to sell wholesale at wholesale prices. But at the same time, I'm not doing a market. I don't have to take the stuff to market. I don't have to set up at market. I don't have to break down at market. I don't have right. to, I don't have to do, I don't have to spend. I mean, a market day for everybody that does a market or doesn't do a market. I mean, you're, you're up at five and packing the truck at six 30 and then getting to the market location at seven 30 or eight to open the market at nine and go till one. And then you're breaking down and getting home at two thirty, and then putting things away, and that's just right. offloading and the truck, that's... and it's it's like an entire day. So um, to have somebody sell the product and then give it to them at a discounted wholesale price kind of makes it worth it because time is money, and you're saving a lot of time having someone else sell your stuff. Yeah, and and then a lot of times that's what on the weekends. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. your Saturday. You don't really get weekends. So the wholesale could be nice because you can 
make your schedule a little bit more of a schedule and, you know, nine to five, if you wanted to. And ideally I, I, I'd like to think that if it can get to the point where either I, I just bring extra, like, uh, extra meaning, you know, um, whatever I'm not, I'm not sitting on to fulfill these contracts, which everything is still so new. I, I'm, I still don't have enough, um, data, if you will, to, to like make projections on what is upcoming and what's going on. Um, I I'd like to get to a point where either I, I take just extra big air quotes, um, to market or, I can just go to market as a part-time vendor and just go when I have uh, an abundance of stock that I, that I'm not selling. I, there's a lot, the, there's a lot that I don't know and a lot of uncertainty, which is, it used to, it used to be intimidating and mildly terrifying, but it's kind of become exciting because I have to figure out I'm <laughs> I have to figure out what the future has in store. And even though like everything is out of my control, that uh, to some extent I'm responsible for how it goes. Okay. And that's, that makes that's cool. Yeah. So going back, and maybe you don't know the answer to this since your parents kind of started it, like did you have to get a food license and do you have I know that you have a kitchen. So do you have like a a kitchen that was inspected in order for you to go and do all this? Or is yours still small enough that you're under like Ohio's cottage food laws? How is how is that working and how has that process been? Yeah, that's a good question. So when when we started doing everything, uh, it was all sort of experimental. And we did not have a commercial kitchen here, but we were leasing out commercial kitchen space at a place in town. And because when you, you, if you're making fermented foods, it's similar to cottage food laws, but it's different because you have to make it in a USDA inspected facility and you have to have log books. Okay. Um, indicating like when batches were made and when they were packed and, and, a, um, you know, uh, a bunch of information, um, and the log books need to be kept at that location. So we had a space at a kitchen in, uh, locally that helped us and we, <laughs> We kept our logbooks there, and according to anybody that was inquiring about our operations, we made the product there because that's where the logbooks were kept. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And initially, we didn't like we didn't know what Dad when Dad started this. He didn't know what he was doing, uh, so he just did it, and like right. he would take bulk batches to the market and then scoop it out like if you wanted eight ounces or a pound you would you would just weigh it oh, out and scoop it out and do that but that's not cool like so they right. shut him down and said you yo you bob you can't do this so he right. said okay well i'm just not gonna sell it um 
but I'll, but I'll take donations for it. And they're like, okay, fine. Like, we're not going to say you can't do that because like, we don't have control over that. So he kind of did this bootleg kraut thing for a season. And then kraut we just bootleg and kraut. Yeah. Like <laughs> bootleg kraut out of a cooler donations only. Um, so that was that was for the first year. That's kind of how that went down. And then it became more legitimate with experimental packaging, uh, mm-hmm. different types of containers for the next year or two. And then we finally, I think it was 2020 when we toured the facility and saw how they how they packed it, how they jarred it up, like, um, and then tried to. We didn't try to. We replicated it. it their production methodology exactly. And yeah. We've so been now doing you have a kitchen, Yeah, we we ended up building the kitchen in our barn, um, in twenty twenty one, and and finished it. Oh God, the time is all combining now. But I, I think towards the end of the year last year we or in 2021 we were operating out of our commercial kitchen on site and then last year was the first full year that we how hard were operating that? in our kitchen and then this year was the second year and managing kind of and and dealing with the inspector myself because right yeah you know, how, obviously, how hard has that been to like build the kitchen get it approved and and the inspections um is that a lot of work to do that it's was not it as hard as you would think. If you don't mind me asking, was it like really expensive? No, because there's all like, there's a lot. It, de- it I guess, first of all, it depends on what, what your, what one would define as expensive because yeah. it, it's, it's going to cost. like, if you're doing this, if you, well, we decided that we were going to get serious about this and actually make a, make a go at it and, you know, do it. Um, and we were already renting out the commercial kitchen space for what amount of money. I don't know. It's going to vary on the kitchen and the location and your drive time and all of this. So those costs are kind of variable. I think I like, I designed the kitchen, just the space. And it's basically just an open room. It's not a complicated space. And we, but there's also a walk-in cooler attached to it. Um, or we built the walk-in cooler first and then sort of like, built the kitchen next to it. So it's basically just an open room that we framed in, insulated, slapped up drywall, put FDF or or, uh, F, what is the name of the paneling? The white stuff. Oh yeah, like that plastic Um, stuff so you can wash it really. FDP uh, or I don't remember the name of the paneling right offhand. Yeah, the super easily like spray down, easy to clean stuff. And it wasn't necessary to do everything across the board with that, but like in my mind, it also wasn't that much more expensive to just like wall it out with eight foot because it comes in eight foot sheets and just panel the whole thing and make it look like a legitimate kitchen. Um, so that's what we did for an extra few hundred bucks. So I think like all the framing materials, insulation, maybe like 3000 bucks. Um, okay. Was the cooler expensive or you didn't sound, you said you built one and yeah, we, we, one. we built one, framed it out, insulated it, and then put additional insulation 
like three layers deep of the styrofoam insulation okay. on top of the fiberglass insulation and also did that up on the ceiling too and it's run with a big air conditioner and cool bot so a cool bot yeah that's yeah. cool yeah those are really those have made turning refrigerator space so much easier for like homesteaders to yes so much and it's and so much more definitely it, like that's not hard to do either um you can find people that have walk-in refrigerators panels and and kind of like kits but you know it it kind of depends on i if i had to do it again i'm i would i would look maybe at the cost efficiency of something like that deconstructing something that somebody's built and then reconstructing it and having it in a different location than where it is now um because the way that we did it is it's kind of stupid um because we just there was a window in the barn so that's where it went because there was a window and we didn't need to cut anything in addition I to see. Like, okay. so it's just, we, we did a lot of things here that didn't look in hindsight's always 2020 that didn't really make sense. But like, I'm, I'm, I'm a suburb kid. You know, my parents are suburb kids. My mom grew up in the country, dirt poor, but like my dad was a suburb kid. I'm a suburb kid. We're, we're out here just trying to figure stuff out. We don't know what we're right. doing. Um, yeah. So we kind of did the best we could with the knowledge that we had. And would we have done things differently? Well, sure, but this is what we did. But yeah, the the long and short of it is building a walk-in cooler is not as complicated as we think it is. Building a commercial kitchen is not as complicated as it seems to be. And then um, inspectors, like USDA inspectors, aren't as intimidating as everyone makes them out to be. Um, as long as you know the rules, follow the rules and aren't a jerk when they come to inspect your stuff and look at as a, at it as an opportunity to learn then like they actually most of them like helping you like teaching people and if you're open and receptive to learning things and saying oh yeah well my labels are wrong or oh yeah i didn't understand that i'll do this differently they'll 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 you know most most of the inspectors and and people that we deal with in terms of like the mobile because we also have to have a mobile license and a small mobile fridge which we just slapped okay. wheels on a small refrigerator and now it's a portable refrigerator there's all sorts of like little nifty workarounds that you can just make and make it work okay. and 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 in the eyes of the inspecting institutions they don't really care as long as it works um right yeah they just so, care that the food is kept at the proper temperature yeah and that's even a weird thing too because a lot of inspectors understand that fermented the lacto fermentation was a food preservation process right before refrigeration was a thing so but it it once they're packed in the way that we pack them they have to be refrigerated cuz they can't like off gas properly so there's right. there's some weird things and that's where it gets there's like it's a kind of an interesting gray area with cottage foods and and other foods because either fermented foods are like good or they're not like you you can test the pH and it's good or it's not like I'll some stuff that's questionable with regard to pH I'll keep and eat myself but 
Um, it's not something I would I would sell, but it's safe ish. Um, okay. and until so, it's not, and then you know. But I'm like blah 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 blah. No, I could I will I want to get back to that, but I want to ask you two questions about stuff you just said before I get back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, so where did you learn the rules that, you know, you said when the inspector comes, they just care that, you know, the rules, so where did you learn those rules? Are they, are they easy to access? Like on the state website, did you have to take classes? Uh, I'll answer to the best of my ability. Cause like I said, for a couple of years, dad was the primary person interacting with the inspector, but um yes you can get a lot of information online but really at this point now if there's something that i need an answer to i i i know who the inspecting agent is i have his contact information and i just email him a question oh, or perfect. you know if i was going to say say i was going to make um i, I don't know just a, a, a mayonnaise or or ketchup like i i don't know just some some product that i don't make now i would i would just reach out to them and say hey i'm interested in making this what do i need to okay what do i need to know to do this and he'll tell me and it helps that you have that that good relationship with them and that you haven't been snarky and you've been willing to be wrong and ask questions yeah that's just like yeah. normal human relations just like anything else yeah. they're they're doing their job just like anybody else who works a day job does their job. And, you know, if you have a customer or a sales rep who's just a total jerk, like you're going to be less inclined to work with him on good terms because they're a jerk. Um, and if you're a jerk, then people that have to work with you are going to be less inclined to work with you because you're a jerk. So try not to be a jerk and your life gets better. Like it's pretty simple, you know, like just normal it people. Seems and that stuff. Way. <laughs> it, it, it seems that way, but oftentimes it's not because, you know, a lot of times, I guess, like you, you, you put work into something and you think, you know, things, and then the reality is you don't, and maybe you think somebody's wrong or, and, and that's another thing too, is we've had multiple over the years, we've, we've had to deal with three different inspectors and that can be problematic because sometimes inspectors will have a different stance on certain things. And who's right, mm -hmm. who's wrong? Well, okay. it it, okay. it does it doesn't really matter. You just have to understand what what it is that they're taking issue with, and then adjust accordingly. And sometimes even they're willing to say, "Oh yeah, like I'm I'm learning." Um, everybody's everybody's learning, and uh, and and especially with stuff like. And it's going to vary too from state to state. I can only speak about Ohio yeah. and yeah. Medina County, sure. but um, a lot of this stuff is, you know, it's not it's not commercial. Yes, we sell commercially, but it's not at a commercial scale. So the the process from um, a, a a manufacturing facility that's putting out, you know, hundreds of thousands or millions of units is going to be very different than a small operation that's doing thousands, maybe 10,000 units. Like, and that's, that's a stretch. We haven't done 10,000 in a year, um, but okay. we will. So it's, it's, but it's very different. So they have to like, it. it's a, I, 
imagine it's a struggle for them to see a big operation. Maybe a dairy would be like something that's a little bit more tangible for people. It's it's very different to see a commercial dairy with, you know, hundreds and hundreds of head of cattle versus a smaller dairy operation who's running a small herd of like 10 or 20. Right. Similar processes are in place, but they're all being executed very differently. Okay. Yeah. That all makes super sense to me. And um, yeah, so let's move on to talking about the actual ferment part. Okay. You're okay with that? Sure. So fermenting, um, I guess we'll just go really back to basics for people that don't know what it is. What you know, fermenting, what is it? And I know you do, you're doing mostly vegetables, right? At this point? Yes. Okay. Not fruit, not sourdough, which is a form of fermentation. Just most not for vegetables. sale. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. So fermenting the art of lacto fermentation, it's, it's really, it's really quite simple. Um, when you add salt, to vegetable matter and let's just say sauerkraut because that's kind of like the easy tangible thing that mm-hmm. a lot of people are familiar with when you chop cabbage and then add salt to it by the process of osmosis salt draws the water that's in the cabbage out of the cabbage so you know you 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 don't want to add too much salt you don't want to add too little salt so you can use like 2% of salt to the weight of your cabbage is kind of a good benchmark for starters. And then mix it all together, scrunch it up with your hands, um, crunch, 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 let it sit and, you know, for 15 minutes. And eventually that water will get drawn out of the cabbage. And then once you put it in a fermenting vessel, whether it's a big jar or uh a a five gallon bucket that's food grade or one of the old school crocs that your grandma and grandpa had or whatever it is that you're using and then have the vegetable matter pressed down either with weights or some sort of contraption on their stones bags of water with rocks on what there's all kinds of ways but the right yeah what you want to do is just have the natural salt brine that is created from the existing water in the vegetable matter and the salt that you added, you want to have all of your vegetable matter underneath that brine so that you've got a anaerobic environment and all of the natural bacterias and all of the good stuff that's on the plants naturally that, that engages the process of lacto fermentation. And then um, over time, uh, it it begins almost immediately, but mm-hmm. over time, you have fermented vegetables, and it's 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 really it's it's, it's awesome. really a simple process. It um, is simple, but it's it's, it's um, intimidating. It is intimidating, and I'm glad you just explained it exactly like that because you make it sound so simple, which it really is. And yet, the chemistry behind it is complicated, but it really is simple to do. Um. So how do you decide? And now I assume that in a commercial operation like you're doing, you're probably using airlocks. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you decide when it's done? Yeah. So when we started, and and this is how you would do it if you were just doing it at home, 
you, you, you try it. Um, <laughs> you it, like, as soon as you add the salt, as soon as you get the crunch, crunch, crunch with your hands in your big bowl or whatever you're using to mix everything up and just taste it right there when it's freshly salted and see what the texture is like, see what the taste is like, see, just kind of have that experience. And then once you put it in, you know, put it in your, your fermenting vessel, whether it's a countertop uh, level mason jar in a spring or with some glass weights or whatever, you let it sit a couple of days and then taste it again. Let it after a week, taste it again. You, you, you kind of have to be careful every time you do that though, because each time you, you break into your ferment and then get in there, you increase the risk of introducing the nasties and the nasties are just everything that comes in from the air. So, you know, just as long as you understand that every time you open it and expose it to air, you're increasing the likelihood of it junking out. Um, that's fine, but that's how, you know, and it's going to vary on the ambient room temperature of your kitchen. Yeah. If you keep it next to your refrigerator, which is going to generate a little bit more heat, it's there's also, you know, and then you've got like the old school stories of like Korean grandmothers making kimchi for that buried it in the ground for six months. Um, well, they, when stuff's buried in the ground, it's at a lower temperature and it's going to ferment slower. So that's what, when refer when your fermented stuff goes into the fridge, it doesn't stop fermenting. It just slows it down dramatically because what you've got in your fermented vegetables are live active cultures that are, that are alive. So, um, and, okay. and they die when they're heated and cooked. And that's what's when you see right. sauerkraut in a bag or on the shelf at the supermarket, it's been pasteurized and cooked and it's no longer alive and active and, you know, has all the beneficial probiotics and a lot of the good stuff that we like with lacto-fermented stuff. It was fermented at one point, but it is no longer fermenting. Um, right. So how do you know it's done? You just, it's done when you like it. Okay. And, and over time, as you do it enough, you'll just understand. And it's good to keep records. Like we, we have, we still keep log books and keep notes, um, about, you know, whatever, uh, you know, maybe I made something like, for example, maybe some cabbage was old and it was not bad yet, but also wasn't as good as the rest of the other batches that I made. So this one batch, if it goes bad, I have some idea of why. Okay. Um, and so just keep notes on everything and test things. And then over time, you'll just have a better idea with practice of when it's ready and when it's not. And you can't really let it go to, that's one thing that I have learned. And just to like fully answer your question is there's really no, I've found no benefit for in letting things go for long periods of time, like 30 days versus 90 days or a hundred days or 120 days. The, the texture, once you reach like 60 days versus hundred days, there's not a considerable a considerable amount of textural change or flavor 
okay. um, things like that. It's, 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 it's kind of done. It's, uh, yeah. it's just, it's and, done. And, but you were also speaking about pH. So how, what makes you decide to test pH or do you do that always? It's not something I've ever done with my ferments. So yeah. Yeah, it, that's just part of the the selling selling it commercially okay. is having pH records, and you know you 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 can at home. Um, I never did before either. Um, okay. When I was making stuff earlier in in my younger years, um, just for fun, like making rejuvelac or other just fermented whatever whatever experiments I was doing. And I I never tested because you, if your P, if your, if your ferment goes bad, you're going to know it. Like there's a difference between yeast, which is called cam yeast on top, K-H-A-M and mold. Um, Mold looks like mold. Um, Yeast just looks like floating yeasty things that don't look like mold it's it's a terrible explanation but like you know when it goes bunk because it smells bad it just smells off like that was going to be one of my other questions was how do you know when it's bad yeah like i think as people as humans over time we have these things within us that we know aren't good like rotting meat we know that (laughs) it doesn't smell good um when your ferment goes bad it smells like just bad and it's like a an off negative aroma tang that's like not good um okay. whereas the other ones smell tart it smells sour it ta- it has that sour you know almost like a vinegary tang to it but um yeah. but yeah the, the as far as the pH goes you can get simple test strips they're cheap and you know like we usually everything comes out and uh, you know they're varying colors there's a there's a color scale and everything right. seems to come out around f- between 3 and 4 exactly what it is so that's I where you want know. it is 3 and 4 yeah okay. but if it if 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 the strips show you know there defi- there's a distinct difference between like the color that you want on the strips that we use the 3 to 4 is like a lighter green and then when it gets 4 or 5 it's like distinctly bluish purple. And, and so you, you know, immediately when it, when it smells questionable, the, it'll definitely look different on a pH test strip. And it's just, uh, it's, it's noticeably like different and not in a good way, different. So do you mind if I ask you what, what, like, what does your day look like? you when you get into the kitchen and like, how does that look? It depends. Uh, Like, well, for example, tomorrow is going to be preparation of a, a, a puree because I don't have a lot of that. And a lot of times if I'm, if I'm making puree and what I mean by puree is like, we make five different kinds of sauerkraut and we also make, two regional ferments one is a kimchi one is called curtido which is a latin american ferment kind of like the kimchi of el salvador and a lacto fermented mustard so it i make and i i i i have statistics and i keep numbers on everything that i've sold i know what sells the most i know what sells the least um so if i'm 
short on something. Um, and I usually try to have at least one batch in production in addition to everything that's packed and saleable. So it like, but in order to make the thing that I'm going to start making tomorrow is a jalapeno cilantro sauerkraut, which is made with a puree of uh, jalapeno peppers that are corn and garlic and onions and cilantro. And I make that in bulk and then I divvy it out and then I freeze that. And then, so it's all portioned out when it's time to make it. So I only have enough for one batch. So like on a regular day, basically I'm kind of, if I haven't done it already, I'll take stock of what I have that's in production when when i made it when it's projected end date is when it's likely going to be ready what i have saleable and then think about what i need to do and then do it and right now i need to get caught up on the puree to make certain products um okay. otherwise i'll just get into it and make stuff so do make you make the various like- products you make stuff in really big batches and then jar it up and keep it in the refrigerator to sell later. Like how much of that can you do and how far ahead can you do something like that? Cause with ferments, I know refrigerating, it slows it down, but it does still ferment even in the fridge. Yeah. And that's kind of what I'm working on figuring out. Um, okay. Cause it doesn't, it, it definitely, it takes more time to make a batch and do the prep work and make it and then do the cleanup than it does to take a completed batch and pack it and label it. Like I can, and we do all of our batches in five gallon um, food grade buckets that, you know, we've got the the secret little hookup on right. five gallon food grade buckets. So, you know, each one of those generally will produce about 25 to 30 jars, depending on, um, whatever recipe we are making and kind of how things turned out in that particular batch. So it it might take several hours to produce a batch and clean it up. Whereas it only takes a couple, like it takes half that time to put it in jars, you know, top off the jars with a little bit of extra brine, label it, you know, wipe down the jars, label the jars, stick them in a case and then walk them to the cooler right next door. So I'm, I like to have a couple of cases on hand at any given point in time, because I may get a call and say, you know, Hey, Rob, you know, we're, we need this, we need that. And then I, I can just say, okay. And I can be there the next day and fill that order and also have enough ready for the upcoming market. But now with decreased markets there's less of a need to have a full inventory of backstock so okay. it's kind of this balancing act of the reality is i i don't know how much i need to keep on hand but i start feeling uncomfortable if i have less than two cases of everything at okay. all times that makes sense yeah and it, there's 12 jars in a case for whatever that's worth okay that's a lot of that's a lot of product you're moving yeah yeah, I mean it. It. I, mean, I didn't for really one, for one person basically running the show. That's a lot. Okay. Yeah, I think we've moved. I think I just sat down to try to figure out like what I'm doing and and how I'm doing it. And 
over the course of the year uh we've probably sold 2600 or so jars of sauerkraut and then we also started bottling up the brine using little eight ounce okay. bottles that's right um, i saw that yeah and that's not that's it's a basically all the brine is a byproduct of the fermentation process but we dad and i used to take it up there and just pour out like little gut shots for people as kind of a fun thing like hey this is right, what happens yeah. when you ferment stuff and people really liked it and we're like yo you should bottle this stuff and sell it and i thought okay why not like if i can make some money on this thing that normally just kind of went down the drain or i did do some weird mustard experiment like sure and so people use it and make bloody marys with it or vinaigrettes or marinades for meats or whatever but that's not really like a do what or just drink it for electrolytes yep. yep yep um so i i don't i don't really like market it i'll just take it to market because okay it's not it's not really in demand but there are some some brine freaks out there like 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 my girl valerie she loves the brine and she'll come and buy just like cases of brine because she'll drink it like a bottle every three days but she's oh, wow. kind of an anomaly so i hope there are more people like her exactly. because i'd love to cater to her needs but um <laughs> but yeah it's uh it, it it's it's kind it's a lot um there have been some late nights trying to keep up with things and 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 manage things and learn all of the administrative things that that dad did but we are looking at making a a big purchase in terms of a, a food processor upgrade um and that oh, yeah, should I heard you talk about that decrease some production times and and really make things a little bit um easier to to do so i'm i'm actively researching that and i'm excited about that because that will should theoretically free up some time to do other things whether it be um increase you know find new opportunities for sales and new markets or try to contract with amish to get more locally grown stuff or just do more homesteady things because it's it feels weird being here but spending like 10 or 12 hours in a, in an enclosed room and not yeah, really spending yeah. a lot of time outside. It's, it's so. That part, that part would be hard. What do you have um, any products that you're working on to add? Like, how do you decide when you're going to add to your product line? Do you just take kind of like the gut shots? Do you take samples to the market and see how it goes over? Yeah. And that's going to be, yes in short yes um right now we're pretty steady with like the the five and this is kind of a change we 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 recently we had historically been calling curtido a sauerkraut we were just we would say we sell six different kinds of sauerkraut and kimchi and a mustard but i started learning a little bit more about like re and reading a little bit more about regional ferments and trying to up update you know our how we market the different products and realizing that curtido curtido is a latin american ferment with cabbage onions carrots garlic um and a bunch of spices like cumin oregano and red pepper flakes and i went full nerd and started learning about oregano and then 
made sure to get like Mexican oregano instead of the traditional oregano, which is ah. like a Mediterranean. There's so what you're getting is like an Italian Mediterranean type of oregano when you buy oregano at the store. And there's a different okay. Mexican oregano is a different species of herb a plant. Um, and it's got a different flavor profile. So I'm now using that and trying to dial in the regional element of it and learning that it's it's sauerkraut like, but it's not sauerkraut because it's not a traditional like cabbage base because okay. of all the other things. So um there is I actually have to say that sounds way better to me than kimchi. I'm not a huge fan of kimchi, but that sounds really good. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because everybody's got different tastes and um you know what they're into and what they're not. The people that like kimchi love it. Uh people that like curtido love it and they don't like other things. So there's also, you know, I'm trying to pay attention to like just population demographics. Uh there's an increasing Indian population um around okay. everywhere. Um and there was somebody at the market at a recent event, the candlelight walk selling Indian spices. And um, ah. so I started, you know, poking around and I, um, I know someone whose husband is Indian and has family in India. And I'm trying to have her pick his mom's brain about Indian ferments and maybe do something like that and yeah it will be trialed at market to see what if any interest is there and those okay. will be made and usually our trial stuff is done in smaller batches like two gallons at a time um okay. to see if it works and if it doesn't because that way there's not a big investment into it so right now you're like you're basically a one-man business because you're doing you're taking it to the market you're making the product you're doing all of the books as well right i will be moving forward yeah because wow. um my brother and my my family's awesome first of all uh you know when when my dad <laughs> uh excuse me when my dad got sick the the uh the family rallied hard and um everybody everybody pitched in to uh make sure that everything was was handled and um you know my sister did a lot of things with mom and my my brother really stepped in and uh handled a lot of the books and i was doing a lot of uh well, stuff with the business and and correspondence with the VA and and a lot of so we were all sharing typical administrative tasks equally. And one thing that Dad and I wanted to do, and we started discussing this last year, probably around August, was to rebrand the fermented food line and into something different. That we just knew it was going to be something different. Because people would ask us like, well, okay, you guys have a farm, your York Meadow farm. Like, what do you do? Do you have animals? Do you have cows? Do you have like, and we're like, no, it, where it's more like a homestead and it's not really a farm. Uh, we don't grow corn or whatever, or crops. Uh, 
but we have a guy with us that grows stuff, but he does it on his own thing for his own mark. And it was just this, it was turning into this like really complicated story about like what we do. So we, we were just toying around with the idea of calling the fermented food line, like Acme ferments so that (laughs) when people saw it on a shelf, they would see, Oh, this stuff is fermented food. And that makes sense. And I don't have to ask about it. Like Jim's hot sauce. It's hot sauce by Jim. Right. You know, it's pretty cut and dry. It's, um, so that in and of itself required a lot of work and with insurance and how that was going to shake out with the manufacturing of bath and body products and food products at the yeah. same property. Yeah. So, so did you end up having to get separate insurances for those? Yes. Okay. That's what I, yeah. I figured because they're very different. Yeah. So once everything got settled with after dad and getting the estate handled and it's, it was in the process of being moved into and incorporated into a trust. So like all of this was happening at the same time. So it was very complicated. Um, But yeah, it's, it's, uh, the food, all of the, all of the food operations moving forward will be under my business. And in the past, I was serving as a 1099 contractor to my parents' business, which was the farm. So I wasn't really a farm employee in the family business. I was a contractor. So all of the food operations will be under me under different registered trade names, but the farm will still be operating like a hub of activities with different spokes of and facets of operations taking place. Bath and body products, one spoke food, food things is another spoke. Um, leasing land to tenant farmers as another spoke we are hoping to lease a portion of the land to a friend of ours across the street who has an animal sanctuary so she can graze animals on that and that will be another thing that happens and i i don't i don't know how that's going to shake out but i'm hopeful that it does um and then that's just kind of the start of what the future has so yeah, as far as the fermented stuff goes, like I will handle that, but help manage everything else if any of that yeah, makes I, sense. And I think I think a lot of homesteads slash farms are going this way. I mean, I know a lot of the big farms, especially in the regenerative permaculture, organic, they definitely have several different businesses under like one umbrella. I mean, Joel Salatin does it, and I think it probably is one of the best ways to make sure that your eggs aren't all in one basket and to diversify so that you can keep all of this rolling and, and keep it all paid for. So right. Having multiple, like in this case, specific to the bath and body products and food, it's not just that they're under one umbrella, like a secondary LLC had to be formed because insurance companies didn't want to cover Mm -hmm. both in that way yeah. so we were gonna in a secondary llc had was already operating here with with my business and as things changed with dad's passing it made sense to just 
capitalize on the LLC that was in place as my business and do things that way. And by having multiple LLCs operating off of the same property, it provides additional layers of protection in the case that um, someone gets sick from the sauerkraut and they sue my business and me, then, then, then that's impacted, but it has no bearing on the farm or the bath and body products in that business. And if somebody, if Cody breaks his leg doing something up there and he decides to sue the farm, it won't have any bearing on the bath and body products or me because there's one property, two businesses, three policies. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's a really good way to go about it. And I think a lot of, a lot of homesteads, well, at least some, several I know do that. I mean, I have multiple LLCs for different things that I'm doing, but still on all under my same roof of my home and my property. So it just makes sense. It can be complicated at first, but, and, and initially there was a lot of thinking like, well, this is stupid. I shouldn't be doing this this way. It's more complicated than it needs to be. But I think just like anything else that's new, every, everything, everything is complicated when you've never done it before. Yes. Everything. Um, whether it's riding a bike or, you know, transitioning from Velcro to tying your shoes, it's like (laughs) everything is hard if you've never done it before, but the only way to learn it is to do it. So we do it and we learn. Well, I have seen you and I don't know when when we met or when I started listening and being aware of your story, but I've seen you definitely grow and change through this process. And it's it's been really fun to watch you go from being afraid of what was going on to being confident about the decisions that you're making. And it's it's really cool. It's fun to share all of this with this little and it's not, it's, it, it seemed little at one time, but it's, it's expanding. I mean, and, and what all of the things that you're doing is expanding. So the circles are getting larger and larger and larger that we're interacting in, but, it and, and, and at the same time, we're realizing that those circles are starting to overlap and people that you know, I know, and, and, and people that we meet at different events, know people that it's so it's like the world gets our, our little, our little worlds of, of the various things that we do get bigger, but they also get smaller. If, mm-hmm. if that makes sense, because <clears throat> there's a lot of, there's a lot of people doing, doing different things, but the mechanisms that are employed by those people doing different things are oftentimes <clears throat> examples from the big boys that are doing the big things like the Joel Salatins. And so when we go to see him speak at whatever conference, we have an opportunity to meet him. And then we have an opportunity to connect with other people who we've connected with online. So it's, yeah, it's, yeah, it's very cool to, it's, it's nice to hear. It's nice to hear that, to, to, to see that change 
witnessed, but it's also nice to witness change in other people and, and everyone else out there who's actively involved in these little communities that we're all involved in, because many of them are different. Many of them are the same and, and they continue to grow. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I don't know if I have any more questions. Is, is there anything else you'd like to add to this? No, nothing other than just, oh, go ahead. I said, we've talked quite a bit and I feel like we've given people a taste of what it's like to, you know, do what you're doing, especially with ferments or even just with any thing that you're going to take to the market. And so I feel like people have a good idea of how that. Yeah. And I, I mean, it, it, so much of this stuff sounds intimidating and, and, and that, well, you know, other fermenting is a cool, is an interesting thing. I'll just say, I'll just add this on there because this was something that dad took into consideration. Um, a lot of people do cottage foods, bake breads, make muffins, uh, do yeah. this, do that. A lot of people grow vegetables. A lot of people, um, are out there doing something coffee re related. A lot of people are doing popcorn stuff. A lot of people, there's there's a lot of common trends in and around farmers markets that that you can see if you go to different farmers markets. Um, there are not a lot of people doing fermented foods. Like it's it's not it's it's almost like a little niche thing, and it can be it it is something that can be done. And with a little bit of planning and a little bit of thinking outside of the box in terms of how you approach the operations that you're engaging in, it's something that 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 anyone can do without knowing custom cabbage growers or anything like this. Um, it's something that 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 anyone can do, and whether it's fermenting foods or anything else, if if there's something that is in and on your mind that you want to do to start a side hustle or or change or or do something to 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 expand your your knowledge base your skill set a little just do it like just just do it it's it's it 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 requires some discomfort initially and but it's not unlike working out or doing anything else. It, it, it's going to require a little bit of stress in order to grow. And not all stress is bad stress. There will be times when some of it does <laughs> seem bad. Yeah. But, um, you know, when when you're doing something, you know, weigh out the costs, uh, do pros, cons, simple stuff that people talk about, and and ultimately do it and try it. And don't be ashamed if it doesn't work out because if it doesn't then it's another opportunity to try something different um but ultimately like there's there's all kinds of opportunities to do all kinds of things and there is an increasing i think an increasing desire for people to you know support smaller people doing small things and um I and i think it's just a good time to 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 do it and because not only is it a like a fun little 
you know, side hustle, but the, the, the community that's around that, you know, virtually in, in, in online and podcast land, but also the community that you develop locally interacting with people at markets and doing this is it's, it's priceless. It's a very, it's a very fun and rewarding thing to do. And I, I think, I think people are capable of more than they think they are. And so I would just yeah. encourage anybody who's even entertaining the idea of doing anything to try it. And if it's related to fermented foods, then by all means, you're welcome to contact me and I'll share any and all information that I can to help. Yeah, I, I agree. I couldn't say it better. I like it. <laughs> And that's why at the end of every podcast, I tell people, grow where you're planted. 100%.